Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Ontario Medical Association is blasting the province for ending a program that provides health care services for people without health insurance. We'll talk about the implications of that decision. And what does the Canadian Chamber of Commerce want to see from today's federal budget announcement? And Hong Dung's legal options, just what are they at this stage? Well, Andrew Fergiorelli, lecturer at the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto, will join us to discuss that. All coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. One of the other stories, though, that uh, that we do want to cover uh, swings back to Ontario here, and it's about health care. And it's a pretty important story. We knew that uh, there were going to be some concerns about how the budget was going to impact uh, different government departments here in Queen's Park and Ottawa uh, specifically. But the story we got yesterday is that, uh, well, the federal government, or the provincial government, I should say, uh, is learning about a suspension on Friday of, uh, of, well, basically health coverage for people that don't have health cards. And to that point, the Ontario uh, Medical Association is blasting the province uh, for ending the program that provides health care services for people without health insurance. Uh, Dr. Rose Zacharias uh, says patients who face barriers that prevent them from getting a health card in Ontario could be impacted by this decision. So what does this all mean? You know, I think most of us just think, oh, it's just Ontario. Everybody's covered. Everybody gets health care. Or do they? Uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Dr. Jason Profetto. Dr. Profetto is a family physician and chair of the Clinical Skills and MD Admissions at McMaster University. Uh, doctor, good to have you back in the program. Thank you so much for the time today. Hi, Bill. Great to be here. Let's talk a little bit about maybe the situation as it is now, Doctor, and, and what this policy change is going to actually do to that policy. Uh, is, I, I know it's kind of a naive thing to say, well, everybody's covered. This is Ontario. We all have OHIP cards. Uh, I guess in reality, we don't, do we? Not everyone does anyway. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, like from the perspective of family medicine office, uh, dealing with OHIP coverage and ensuring OHIP cards are up to date and everyone is eligible, it's actually quite a burdensome thing. There's a lot of administrative work that goes behind it. And I, I think I see both sides. It's an interesting issue. We want to ensure that everyone is covered and everyone has equal access to care for sure and are eligible via OHIP cards. However, the other side of it is we, we, we need to make sure that these things are updated and accessible because when they're not, it's difficult to track where people are and what people are doing, right? So I think at least from a family medicine perspective, tracking, taking care of health cards, uh, OHIP health cards, making sure the version codes are up to date, making sure they're not expired uh, is tricky. And if they aren't, then it gets into about whether or not people should be charged personally or is this still OHIP covered or are you starting to do things pro bono? Well, let's, yeah, those are some rather drastic options, I guess, the, as you've laid them out here. Uh, and, you know, I guess we for generations now, you know, we're, we're used to health cards and just figuring, oh, this is an easy process. But as you say, they expire, they have to be accounted for, there has to be a number code and there's a code on it, of course, that that, uh, you know, will be updated. But what about the person that doesn't have one? Uh, we looked at the application for an OHIP card, and there's a lot of people that are new to this country, of course, over the last number yeah. of years. You and I have talked about that before, Doctor. Uh, the first thing you have to do is have a permanent address and three different pieces of ID. Uh, there are some people in this province, in this city, that just don't have that. They, they can't produce that. What happens to them? Yeah, it, it's very tricky. So for individuals... The application process itself might seem very routine for a lot of people. For newcomers to the country, people who have immigrated, individuals who come on a refugee status, it can be actually quite challenging. So, I mean, the short answer is if you don't actually have OHIP coverage, then you're going to be paying out of pocket. Uh, 
Um, for example, a lot of professional athletes do that. They don't have a, prof- uh, a permanent residence here or people that are just migrating mm-hmm. for shorter times of the year. Um, but for a lot of people, like we're talking about, let's like, you know, for immigrant populations that come, in my experience, and we do encounter this every once in a while where, where someone comes, they don't have OHIP coverage. Those, those drastic options that I laid out previously, I mean, effectively, they don't have it. So are you going to charge them or are you going to do it pro bono? Sometimes there's an additional um, insurance options that they may or may not have. Usually they don't have them. In my personal experience, I think it's a very difficult thing, but ultimately, I am. Do- I end up doing. Well, I think a lot of family doctors end up doing this stuff uh, um, for free. Uh, in the hospital system, it's a little bit different because to walk into a hospital, you can't do that unless you have coverage or insurance. So it's a lot tougher of a sell, especially because that type of service is going to be a lot more um, challenging. But I think we really need to look at the application process and to shoot. And we've said this before, right? A service is only as good as as long as it's accessible. So you need Mm -hmm. to make sure the application itself is feasible and doable for a lot of people that come. And and I I think it's important. I'm glad you brought that point up. So let's just underscore that once again, because this is not new problem. It's something that's going on for quite some time. And and there's going to be a lot of people uh, that are going to be upset with this. But I have never in all the years that we've been talking about things such as this doctor ever talked to a doctor uh, that said, well, I'm simply going to refuse the patient. Uh, The the patient gets will will be treated in one way or another. But as you say, it's a little trickier in a hospital situation because you won't get past the triage desk, uh, which is going to be a problem. But in a doctor, office or in these clinics, uh, you know, the, 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 the argument here seems to be, well, who's going to pay for this? Uh, not who uh, are we going to treat them? Because I've never met a doctor yet that says, no, I won't treat them. Yeah. And, and you know where a really good comparison is? I've wondered about this for a long time is the U.S., right? Yeah. So it's, it's very likely that an individual with no insurance whatsoever can actually walk into a hospital with an emergency and get treated and then what happens to the payment so there are there are systems in the world i mean just south of the border really where you actually see this you see someone walk into a hospital there's a major problem and you know there's like these old documentaries where an individual had two fingers amputated and they were saying hey listen your insurance covers one of them which one do you want fixed right and you got to choose between them um i i i think i i i would be hard pressed to find or think of a doctor in Ontario that I know that would refuse care. But it's also not fair, right? Like, I mean, we, we need to compensate these doctors if they're doing a lot of work. I mean, the odd the odd case or the odd servi- service for free or pro bono is one thing, but if it's as a result of very di- challenging accessibility to healthcare coverage, I, d- I don't think that's fair for the user, the patient, and for the service provider, the doctor. So that needs to be reconciled at the level of the of the government. But that's a, a circle we've been seeing go around for some time. And uh, I know that part of the consternation here is caused uh, by the fact that, you know, there were, as you say, guardrails and parameters that were in place. Uh, but during COVID, everything was basically thrown aside. You know, it's the same as, as you know, with the CERB benefits. Yeah. If, just apply for it, you'll get it. And and they kind of let their guard down on purpose about this and just said, just get treated. If you're feeling you have symptoms, get in there and we'll look after you. Uh, but obviously, the COVID numbers are down considerably. They're not gone, but they're down considerably. And this is, uh, I guess, the government's reaction to it, saying, well, I don't think we need to offer that service anymore. Uh, but I guess a lot of people that, as you say, are in a rather precarious situation uh, may look at that and say, yeah, but that was the only health care that I got. You know, OK, well, Mr. Smith, where do you live? Well, in that tent over there on James Street. Uh, you know, that's that's not going to qualify them. for. But it was for the last three years enough to qualify them. 
Yeah, so that's another issue that we didn't really talk about is the whole the whole challenge with uh, uh, homelessness and homeless yeah. populations, right? And I know this is this is part of the 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 access and equity issue that a lot of people struggle with, right? We we want to ensure that everybody has access, but then what happens to individuals? Again, with the actual application process for OHIP coverage, literally do not qualify based on the specific criteria that are required. I, 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 it's, it's tough. These are really tough. And there's a, there's even, um, shelter care options in Hamilton and the Hamilton Academy of Medicine has sponsored them and financed them. And they provide shelter health, I think is the, the very popular one in Hamilton, a lot of healthcare coverage to individuals that suffer from homelessness. And, uh, you know, they're not, they're not scanning OHIP cards and that sort of thing. And they're treating people and they have identification, but they're doing the best they can with volunteer services and donated um, materials, right? But it, it, it really, really is a challenging situation. I, I understand both sides to it. You want to ensure that people who are here do have proper identification. They can be tracked. We can provide a service that's adequate and appropriate. So we need some sort of system with checks and balances as well. And and I'm hoping when they have that discussion, because there's going to have to be a discussion about, okay, what's the alternative going to be? You've just talked about some of the scenarios. Uh, the people in, in your profession, in other words, doctors and frontline workers are going to be consulted on this. Uh, because I know as it stands right now, they say, look, at that's what the minister said yesterday, uh, Health Minister Jones said, look, at that, they just have to pay it. They could be compensated later. Well, if you don't have the money up front to pay for it, like you say, if you're homeless, you probably don't have a couple of hundred bucks sitting in your pocket right now to go and get treated for something. So there, there's going to have to be some flexibility here. But that's a political decision, isn't it? Not, not really in your wheelhouse, but it's going to impact you, certainly. Yeah, I know that definitely is a political decision. And it's, it's like the insurance form thing, right? So when you say uh, there's someone's on disability, they have a medical problem, um, they need an insurance form filled out. Can you do it? It's going to cost them $40. Do you charge somebody $40 for an insurance form when they're already disabled and unable to work? Those, that, that's, that's a tough thing to do. And um, we're, we're discriminating a bit too. So individuals that are going to be able to pay for, for care, just like you say, these are not going to be the individuals that generally don't have access to the healthcare um, applications. So if someone is homeless, 100%, they're going to have major trouble coming up with a cash purchase for any one, one single healthcare service and they get reimbursed after. And you can imagine what the process is going to be like to get reimbursed. I think we need to practice to be a little bit more inclusive of all these populations so to ensure that everyone's getting good healthcare coverage. You know, this is going to have an impact on the private versus public delivery that you and I have talked about a, a number of times now. Uh, you know, the, the people that say this sh should only be public, there should be no private health care providers here at all, uh, are saying that, and I guess, under the false impression that, look, you can just walk into any place and you're going to be covered one way or another. OHIP will cover you. And that's not necessarily the case. And I think this is probably a stark reminder uh, that, uh, that this is not a perfect system and it's going to take some some rejigging here to make this thing more effective. It's it's one of the things that makes me most curious about the future. So if there are tiered levels to healthcare, what are doctors going to do? Are they going to flock to things that are more private in what people conventionally think is private versus public? Or will there will there be some sort of collective responsibility of, of physicians to deliver healthcare to all populations in the province? The risk being a fiscal one in that you may or may not be compensated equally or compensated at all for certain services. I'd argue to a certain degree, we all have that 
you know, shared accountability in healthcare and delivering this service to ensure that everyone has access. And it's not all about the dollar amount. But again, the flip side is you got to balance this with expenses. We have offices to pay for. We need operations to run. We have big human resources and salaries that we have to cover. So um, the, the political piece has to tie into this to ensure that it's actually deliverable. The concern, I guess, that a lot of people are going to have here is, I don't want this decision to, uh, okay, you're going to be charged and we'll serve you. That shouldn't be made at the reception desk at the clinic or the doctor's office. I mean, there's got to be some sort of standard that's in play here that that people can use and say, well, these these are the rules. Instead of doing, you can't do this on an ad hoc basis. That's going to put an awful lot of pressure on, on the medical staff in that facility, isn't it? Yeah, it's funny. We've we've seen this. Like we've actually had these scenarios. You you see it in a lot of different ways too. So if someone shows up very late for an appointment, you know, like do you rebook them? But what happens if this individual has challenges with transportation? If they're disabled, they're coming in a wheelchair. It's cold out. So there's all sorts of things where you need to sort of be flexible. It, it's a big challenge. Now, what happens if someone comes to the office and they don't have OHIP coverage and something's expired and there's life circumstances that have prevented them from getting it updated? There's, you know, uh, substantial economic challenges that they're facing. You know, our response is is usually quite a bit of flexibility and understanding. But that that's one of the let's say that's one of the the blessings and curses of family doctors is that we try to be as kind as we as we can. Sure. But at yeah. the same time, it may hurt from a from a fiscal perspective. But I mean, that's just the nature of the work we do. And you are right; it's not really our job to be the the stewards of this information, like or, or this process, we we deliver healthcare. We're, we're not we're not bureaucrats. I guess we should leave it there. There's an awful lot more to be discussed here, and 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 certainly going to have to be some feedback between the provinces and uh, the medical associations as well. Uh, as always, Doctor, thank you for spending some time with us and uh, giving you your perspective on this. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Bill. Have a great day. Have a great week. You too, Doctor Jason Perfetto uh, from uh, McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, it's a big day for uh, all of us, I guess. Federal budget coming out later on this afternoon. And uh, new details about how the federal budget is going to uh, well spend some of our money uh, during the budget later on today when Christia Freeland makes the announcement. Uh, expected to roll out a grocery rebate for about 11 million Canadian households. Global's Turia Izuri has more details for us. The Canadian household budget is pinched, no matter your stage of life. Last month of school, it's really, really getting tight on the budget. Grocery prices have gone through the roof, haven't they? The Prime Minister is pledging to do something about it in Tuesday's budget. A big part of the budget will be focused on measures uh, to help Canadians in targeted ways. A senior government source says Ottawa is rolling out a so-called grocery rebate. Low to modest income earners will qualify. Single Canadians will get $234, while a family of four will receive $467. From a policy standpoint, I think that makes sense. While it's being called a grocery rebate, economists say it's essentially a GST top-up. It's a cash transfer. Uh, There's no requirement for anyone to do anything. The money just shows up in your account if you already receive the GST credits. The NDP supports the move, but wants more spending on health. We still want to see confirmation of the dental care expansion. The Liberals are increasing RESP withdrawals from $5,000 to $8,000 to deal with the rising cost of education. They're also unveiling a 30% tax credit for clean tech manufacturing. Part of a joint strategy by Canada and the U.S. to fight climate change and reduce reliance on China. While inflation is falling, the threat of a recession still looms. 
Canadians cannot afford to eat, heat and house themselves? Will he show a little bit of restraint and commit in tomorrow's budget to no new taxes? We've demonstrated every step of the way that we're there to support workers, that we're there to support Canadians. The Canadian military is struggling and also looking for support. But it's unlikely the government will announce new spending on things like tanks to replace the ones sent to Ukraine or on recruitment to help with thinning ranks. Liberal sources say they're waiting for a defense policy review to wrap up before making those decisions, and that's expected in the coming months. That's a, a, a quick overview uh, of what we might expect here. But uh, as we mentioned before, there's a, an awful lot of uh, concerned Canadians that have offered input into the government as to what they'd like to see uh, in the gov- in uh, the budget, which is going to be delivered later on this afternoon. Uh, one of those, of course, is our, our friends at the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. And uh, they have, uh, well, sent a letter to the finance minister uh, detailing some of the things they'd like to see the government uh, go and, and concentrate on. Uh, in this very, uh, very difficult time. This is a very important budget in a lot of ways. We're kind of at a pivotal point now. Uh, Joining us to talk about uh, those recommendations is Matthew Holmes. Matthew is the Senior Vice President of Policy and Government Relations with the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Uh, Matthew, pleasure to have you on the program on such a busy day. Thanks for making some time for us today. No, oh, thanks for having me, Bill. Great to be Give here. Give us a quick, quick overview as to as to what the chamber is doing. We've talked with you and 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 co- and so many other members of the chamber over the last little while. And uh, Perrin Beardy, of course, the president's been on with us. Uh, as you say, uh, we are not without challenges here, and and the government's getting tugged and pulled, I guess, in about five different directions as to where they should go. They should not spend any money at all. They should spend a lot of money to get us back going here. Uh, they should uh, listen to what the NDP, their partners, are saying. What's what's the chamber's view on what should happen this afternoon? Yeah, thanks. Well, in our view, there's a there's a big difference between spending and investment, and and what we're looking for is uh, not a lot of new spending, but we would like to see strategic investment. We want to see a strategy for growth, and when I say growth, it's growth driven by pr- private sector investment, not uh, the government borrowing more money to spend on. A number of different things for different groups. We want to see a clear long-term strategy for growth. Otherwise, we feel like we won't be able to afford all of the social programs and industrial programs that we're going to need moving into the future. And and that's the key here, isn't it? To really, you know, the government's not going to supply jobs, but they need to create an environment uh, and and a foundation for for the economy to grow again. Uh, and it, it's it's a a, a monumental task, I guess, to look into something like this. But you've talked about some of the suggestions uh, that you're trying to get into here. And, and of course, a lot of this has to do uh, with the, some of the challenges and maybe some of the, the problems we had during COVID over the last three years. And the one that jumps immediately to mind is supply chains. I mean, we just kind of took for granted that, well, that's the supply chain business. We're all in the same business. But once those things got cut off, uh, we saw the damage it can do. Uh, would it behoove the government here to to relook at that and reevaluate exactly where we're getting our, our raw materials from, et cetera, and and you know shorten those lines first of all, instead of relying on on for instance you know across the ocean for some of these things, uh, to try to build some of those industries and to and to create some of those raw materials and create those environments, if not here in Canada, at least closer to home anyway. Yeah, I know you've you raised a number of good points here. So uh, you've raised talent and, and the, the vacancies and jobs right now. Also, the supply chains. When, when our business data lab at the Canadian Chamber looks at uh, what businesses are facing now, we see nearly a quarter of businesses say that they're struggling to get the goods that they need. So that's, that's the supply chain crunch. And, and that's putting operations and growth 
at risk, including green growth and the transition economy this government wants to see. When we look at our members across the country, and that's over 200,000 businesses, uh, over 400 local chambers of commerce, we're hearing about over a million job vacancies that need to be filled. And, and this isn't government creating those jobs, this is the private sector creating those jobs. And we need the government, obviously, to play a role in that and helping us to, to, to get the talent we need. And, and immigration targets are a good part of that. Um, but we also need the government to kind of get out of the way of some of the business investment that could be made, and the supply chain piece is a good part of that. Now, moving to your your other question around kind of the localized or or nearshoring of supply chains, that's certainly an opportunity here, and we see that particularly in critical minerals right now. And I think Biden's visit last week really underscored uh, the opportunity there for a North American strategy. Canada has an abundance of these critical minerals. They're essential uh, for for uh, the move towards uh, you know a green economy and a net zero economy. And frankly, Canada has a ton of these. We can we can move forward on uh, on on extracting and refining these minerals. They also support things that are you know traditionally a really important base for your area, Hamilton and London, with, with automakers, uh, you know, as we move into advanced manufacturing and new, new manufacturing, including EVs and, and uh, the batteries that we've seen uh, announced lately. So, so there is a critical opportunity here. We, we're, we're quite hopeful that we'll see some strategic investment in those areas. But again, to get to growth and to get to long-term growth for the country, we need to see that driven by private sector investment. And that means the government needs to address red tape. They need to reform regulations, make it easier for businesses to invest and, and move in those areas that we we all share as a priority. And I know a lot of the photo ops over the last little while have been around the EV uh, commitment. And, and that's great. I mean, you know, we'll see the industry minister and the prime minister in some cases and, and others uh, making these the, uh, mega announcements, uh, you know, about Volkswagen and places like that. Sure. And, and that's great. And you mentioned, you know, the auto industry and the cami plant and the resurgence of the auto industry in this country. You know, it was just a couple of years ago. I think you and I were talking about the fact that they, you know, they're closing down Oshawa, they're closing down, you know, Oakville. All of those things have, have changed now. They're done an about turn and that's wonderful. But the thing I wanted to ask you about, and this is something that I think is uh, very germane to this area here is we were going through an, uh, an entrepreneurial boom uh, pre-pandemic. I mean, there's a lot of great things happening, uh, not just in Ontario, but in other parts of the country as well, uh, that we're, I think we're really kind of moving us ahead very quickly up the, the ladder uh, when it came to innovation and, and new talent. And uh, it stalled during the pandemic, as everything else did. How, do you, how does this government rekindle that and, and light that spark again so we can get back onto that track? Well, I think there's a number of elements. Uh, one is in um, in terms of skills and talent. There's there's just a tremendous opportunity here for reskilling, upskilling, and uh, making sure our post secondary sector is really working with business to to prepare the talent of the future that we're going to need. And we look at uh, high tech, for example, and information technology. We know that by 2026, we're going to need 250,000 new grads. Uh, and, and new and new uh, people contributing uh, into that workforce specifically. You look at the, uh, the the climate transition. Also, there's going to be a tremendous need in the energy sector uh, for for new talent. Some of which we don't even know exactly what it is yet, but we know that the time frame is now for the planning to happen, and that that involves the. The federal government it also involves the provincial governments mm -hmm. and immigration is another key piece of this we we need to see the immigration 
really, really focus in on the skilled talent that we need right now. And we, frankly, we need to start finding ways to recognize the credentials of the people coming into our country so that they can get right into the workforce. It's, it's an injustice to them and to our own economy to bring highly skilled talent into Canada and then not optimize them to actually enter the workforce. Well, and part of that, you know, the other part of that phrase, of course, is to attract but retain uh, that talent once Absolutely. you get here too. And there's going to have to be some discussion about that. And that's that's again going to have to be a joint venture between private and public sector, isn't it? Oh, I agree. And 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 to me, you know, it 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 just doesn't make sense. We bring some of the world's brightest to Canada. We have a very competitive post secondary sector in our universities and colleges. Uh, we've we've declared with some of our partners a talent crisis in this country. We bring them here. We train them. We, we, they put down roots. They develop a network. They get some work experience in Canada. They have credentials for our workforce. And then we let them leave. And to me, there's just a, there's just a, a real miss there that we could easily fix. Um, one of the other areas that we're really, really motivated around is, is trade infrastructure and trade enabling infrastructure. So how does the government just enable some of our sectors, food, fuel, fertilizer, I've mentioned critical minerals, to get to our manufacturers domestically, to get to our ports of export, and to our international partners. And and that's a, a real challenge for us that we're hearing about from our members right now. I noticed one of the other bullet points as I was reading over your material last evening, and it just jumped out at me because we've been talking about this so long. I mean, if if you, Matthew, if you guys had a buck for every time you've mentioned about get eliminating interprovincial trade barriers, uh, you'd be wealthy people. I mean, because it comes up all the time because it's necessary. It's it's a real problem to economic recovery here, uh, and it's it's it's. I know the government talks about it, and the provinces talk about it, but boy, it's moving at glacial speed. There's going to have to be something done about that. It really is. I like to say it's easier to get a bottle of wine from Chile than it is from British Columbia. And, yeah. and that a lot of that has to do with, with a variety of the barriers we've put in place across the country. And, and those form over time. They're not, you know, they're not all necessarily there just to create barriers for barriers sake. But over time, they've created really fundamental barriers. And it's hard to trade across the country. And and you have, you know, shipping containers, you have even uh, food containers that are different sizes and different required volumes and that sort of thing. And that just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for business. It doesn't make sense for Canadians. And and really, we want to see joint leadership. And frankly, Bill, this isn't an exciting topic. It's not one that people really get out on the streets and, you know, protest about. So it doesn't get a lot of attention. But this to us is one of the examples of how the government could really lead on regulatory reform red tape reduction and allow and create the environment for business to really invest in the country and in our economy. And we think things like that, simple things like that, that facilitate business investment will make a profound long-term investment because if we can't grow the economy, we can't pay for all the things that we need and we want for society and for business. But that has to be a focused discussion, though, doesn't it, Matthew? I mean, we see eliminate red tape. That's a pretty broad stroke uh, because some governments and some politicians have interpreted that as to, oh, yeah, all those uh, safety standards. We don't really need those things. You can just build it, and if, you know, if it falls apart, well, we'll deal with it and build another one. I, I know that's rather an, it's, a, it's a ridiculous example, but it gets to that point sometimes. But there are some, as you know, bureaucratic areas that can be cleaned up and maybe in some cases eliminated. And, you know, because I've heard from a number of business people, I said, well, how, why do you 
you have to do it that way? Because that's where we've always done it, I guess. Uh, th there's going to have to be a full and frank discussion about what needs to be done here, but at the same time, you know, make sure that you know the guardrails are still in place uh, to make sure that it's going to be smart development and safe development. Absolutely, and we're certainly not advocating for uh, for anything that that doesn't address uh, you know the public public health and public safety. And I actually I think the pandemic's a good example. The first few weeks in 2020, as we rolled into that pandemic, and public health was trying to collect information on you know the incidence of illness and how many people were were sick and how long this thing was was moving through the population in certain areas and we didn't actually even have the same information from the same from different provinces and so at the federal level they couldn't even collect that information and that's a good example it's not necessarily that the um, that a more streamlined approach will be less safe. It's that we're not even using the same information or the same uh, standards when we're when we're doing things. So if you transplant transplant that into the business world, and you start seeing uh, businesses that operate across the country and they have to meet different requirements in every different jurisdiction, but the same baseline of safety is still in place, you start to see the problem. Uh, one of the other points here that I thought is very important about you, because you're talking about the transition to net zero, uh, increasing federal funding for indigenous participation in natural resource development uh, and mineral, mineral extraction, I guess, especially here in Northern Ontario, would be a key element of that. Everybody has to be at the table, don't they? Well, absolutely. And that's that's another regulatory reform area. If you look at impact assessments, uh, you know, there's an environmental impact assessment at the federal level. There's a provincial one. Sometimes there's a municipal or local one. And then, of course, uh, Indigenous uh, indigenous nations and groups have a, a real uh, voice at that table as well. And so is there an opportunity to streamline and uh, find efficiencies to get all of the partners to the table at the same time to move through that process together. Uh, and that, that, that can lead to some really good things. We've recently seen an LNG proposal come through in British Columbia. It was done using this method. The feds were at the table, the BC government was at the table, and the indigenous population there uh, and the nation there was at the table. And now we have uh, a plan for an LNG uh, export opportunity. The, the the indigenous peoples are probably the fastest growing demographic in the country. They're going to be an important and essential part of our workforce of the future. And part of our reconciliation agenda is, of course, economic reconciliation. We have mm -hmm. to uh, ensure that our First Nations and indigenous peoples have access to good jobs and good opportunities and clean jobs in their communities. Well, you've offered, I think, a very entertaining and very challenging framework for the government to work with you. And we'll see just how much the minister is going to incorporate that, I guess, in just a few hours. Matthew, as always, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for the great questions, Bill. You take care. Matthew Holmes, uh, Senior VP of Policy and Government Relations with the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As they get over the, the Biden visit and, of course, focusing on federal budgets up in Ottawa, ongoing investigations about, of course, foreign investment uh, and foreign interference uh, in Canadian politics and in Canadian elections. Uh, one of the, uh, the key elements of, of the well process over the last couple of days, of course, uh, was the revelation of a, a liberal MP in the GTA uh, who, according to Global News reports, uh, tried to influence the decision about the release of the two Michaels. Uh, we are talking, of course, about Han Dong, who has uh, resigned from the Liberal Caucus and is now sitting as an independent. And in his speech the other night in uh, the Commons, uh, he denied all the allegations against him. I want to assure 
Mr. Michael Spavert and Mr. Michael Covert and their families that I did nothing to cause them any harm. Like everyone in this house, I worked hard and advocated for their interest as a parliamentarian. The allegations made against me are as false as the ones made against you. Uh, subsequent to that, of course, uh, he has announced uh, that he is uh, now seeking legal uh, opinions, and uh, we're told he may actually be suing Global News as a result of this. So so what are his options legally at this stage? Uh, joining us to talk about this is Andrew Frugiarelli, who is a lecturer in the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto. Uh, Andrew, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, Bill. Good to talk to you. This is a very complicated thing. At the same time, the the lack of detail and information that we have about this uh, makes it somewhat intriguing. Uh, he says he's now retained a lawyer and plans to sue Global News after it published these uh, these allegations. Uh, Global stands by the story right now. Uh, where does something like this go? I mean, it's it, if if there's going to be a trial, uh, we're going to have to have information. But my understanding is that a lot of the stuff that's probably pertinent to, to this the whole thing is going to be confidential information, top secret information. Yeah, that's right. It, 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 so there's two ways it can go, Bill. Um, number one is uh, Mr. Dong can wait for uh, the inquiry. And, and within the inquiry process, um, there may be powers uh, that the, the uh, any commissioner, and, uh, the, the head of the inquiry would have to be able to access top secret documents, which you assume are going to be involved here um, from sources that CSIS or any other intelligence agencies that provided information to CSIS would have been, had access to. The second route he can go is what he's announced, which is uh, that he would uh, sue uh, Global News for libel. And uh, here as well, you start to ask yourself where the dead ends come into play in terms of what can actually be disclosed. So there's going to be a few layers of that. Number one, there's going to be journal, uh, journalist privilege that will get asserted and litigated um, from the, the, the reporter who broke the story trying to protect his sources. But then beyond that, there would be uh, protection of the information that actually comes from the government. A lot of it, I would assume... Uh, may well be protected by a top-secret classification. So there, there are a lot of potential, I'll call them dead ends or very high hurdles in the court process in terms of uh, the information actually ever becoming public within a forum like a trial. Just maybe, and we're all presupposing if there is going to be a trial, and I guess there's a few steps that have to be undertaken before that happens, aren't there? I mean, first of all, he has, he says he's retained a lawyer and plans to sue. Uh, what's that process? And and what, if he files those papers and files the, the, the charges, is there automatically going to be a trial? No, the, the civil process is a very long one. It takes a long time for civil cases in this uh, country to get to trial, and then most of them don't get to trial. Most of them settle out in the pretrial process. So he would file a statement of claim, uh, and he would put in that statement of claim all of his assertions that he's been defamed, that Global News has committed libel, and set out the liability he alleges for any other parties. Uh, and then those parties, those defendants would get the chance to draft a statement of defense. Uh, and then it goes into the discovery process. Uh, both sides have to turn over information in their power to the other side and produce witnesses out of court in a special examiner's office to go through a discovery process. 
Uh, and it's only after that takes place that you start to go down the road of setting dates for trial. And at each step of the way, there's pressure that the system puts on the parties to settle. So it's not guaranteed that there's going to be a trial. But these evidentiary issues, Bill, are going to come up in that pretrial process as well. Like, how do you get discovery of certain witnesses? All of that is going to get litigated. And when there are disputes in the discovery process as to when a witness uh, has to be made uh, available for discovery or what areas that the parties can go into, that gets litigated as well. So there's the potential here for a lot of different skirmishes before you get anywhere close to the trial process. Okay, a couple of things that we do know that I'm, I'm just going by some of the reporting that we've seen on this, though, Andrew. Uh, the Global Story quotes two anonymous national security sources who alleged that Dong told China's uh, consul general uh, that releasing the men would benefit the conservatives, so hold off on that. That's that's their assertion from this. Uh, if they get into the discovery aspect of this, can can they demand that, uh, that those sources be identified? Can they demand that those documents uh, should be made at least public to the investigation? They can demand it, and the media uh, council for, for Global would fight it. There are, there are prescribed uh, tests uh, for when uh, uh, privilege uh, in media sources can hold and when it cannot. And this has been litigated in the criminal sphere. Uh, within the civil sphere, the balancing may be a little bit different. Uh, but um, uh, it's certainly something they are going to demand. They're going to want to know who the sources are, um, and that'll be the first uh, or one of the first, I would expect, areas of, of litigation between them where um, uh, they ask a, a judge or a, a motions master to rule on whether those sources have to be disclosed or not. Uh, which is one of the oldest arguments, I guess, in the book, you know, protecting sources for journalists, et cetera. Uh, but I imagine, too, if these are actually CSIS employees, uh, is that, that seems to be what they're suggesting here, uh, as to whether or not their identities can actually be, you know, made public anyway. And, and, and then, you know, there's made public and there's not made public. There's, you know, can they speak confidentially to, to the investigation? Yeah, and, you know, the, the discovery transcripts don't become public. So there may be a way a judge believes that they can craft a sealing order um, to ensure that these individuals, if they are ordered to be disclosed, are um, discovered under seal and their identities are protected, right? Courts have those powers to control their own process. But it's going to be very, very interesting to see how far a court is willing to go, especially a civil court, um, uh, looking into and delving into Canada's national security apparatus, which, which guards its sources and guards its information incredibly zealously. Uh, further to that, uh, the Globe and Mail reported that the government actually received a CSIS transcript of what Dong's conversation was uh, with the Consul General, and they, they said they concluded there was no what they called actionable evidence. Now, before they made a statement like that, I don't know who made the statement, who crafted the statement, but would they have uh, had their lawyers look at this too to decide whether or not it was actionable? And by actionable, I don't know what they're meaning. Is that a political action or, or a legal action? Well, it, it, it could be both, right? So the political action obviously would be expulsion from the caucus and or uh, per, perhaps uh, most um, uh, most seriously trying to expel him from the House of Commons, depending on what the conduct was. Mm -hmm. The other half of it would be uh, legal, you know, to interfere in it, what this allegation is could breach any number of laws 
involved in in dealing with foreign governments uh, without the government's uh, uh, express approval to do so, especially in a case like this. So that would be something that government lawyers would look at from both perspectives. The legal side of it would come to the Minister of Justice's desk uh, to determine whether there's actually cause to file a charge under any number of federal statutes. Uh, the political action part, that would be a determination made uh, by cabinet and or the caucus. Uh, this is going to get very complicated, I guess, if they move forward on this. And it's, it's going to be, a, as you mentioned, a long and arduous process. Uh, I'm glad you had some time to shed some light on this for us. Thanks so much for this today, Andrew. Take care, Bill. You too. Andrew Fruggerelli from the uh, University of Toronto Faculty of Law. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.